Welcome to the Habit Podcast, conversations with writers about writing. I'm Jonathan Rogers, your host. This week's episode, the fifth in the Hometown Stories series, takes us to Texas. We'll blow up a gas station in the Panhandle. We'll check out some tumbleweeds in West Texas. We'll pop over to Bryan, Texas, right next to Texas A&M, to wonder how and why Bryan made somebody's best of list and why a big city reporter would want to deny them their moment of glory. And finally, we'll go squirrel hunting in tiny Bluffdale, Texas. Our first story is from my dear friend, the late, great Father Thomas McKenzie. Many times I heard him tell about the night he blew up a gas station, and I never got tired of hearing it. When I first conceived of the Sad Stories Told for Laughs series in 2021, I knew immediately that I had to get Thomas on the show. The story you're about to hear first ran as a Habit podcast episode in July of 2021. The next month, Thomas died in a car crash. Saving this story for posterity is one of the great milestones of the Habit podcast. You're going to like this one. So it was my 18th birthday. It was a Saturday night on the high plains of West Texas. My best friend, Robert Pelfrey, and I were in my father's Ford Taurus station wagon. We went to a party up in the big city of Amarillo where um, a, a girl who went to school with us was also having her birthday. And everyone was there for her. They were definitely not there for me. Uh, I was also there for her, (laughs) as you might imagine. And afterwards, it was late. It was time to take Robert Pelfrey back home to the town of Canyon, Texas, where I went to high school. And so we drove back down to the little town of Canyon, Texas, population about 10,000. And Canyon has um, two major streets that intersect with one another. And at that major intersection, there is a gas station called the Taylor Food Mart, or there was a gas station called the Taylor Food Mart back in the old days. And uh, I noticed that my father's Ford Taurus station wagon was low on gas. And so I decided I better gas it up. So we pulled into the Taylor Food Mart. It was about two o'clock in the morning. And uh, normally, I would pump my gas and then go in and pay for it. This was this was the way, children, before you had a gas, you had like a, a credit card swiper at the pump. You had to deal with an actual human being when you bought your gasoline. Yeah. And uh, I would pump my gas and then go in and pay. But you could pay and then pump. And this fine night, I only had a $50 bill because my dad had given me a $50 bill for my birthday. And I did not know if they were going to take such a humongous denomination. Right. Um, so I went into the, the store. I asked if I could break this. And they said, yes, I offered to pay for $10 worth of gas, which would fill up a four tar station yeah. wagon back in the day. I took my two twenties. I came back to the car and Robert Pelfrey, who is six foot seven and uh, broad, Big man, lots of lots of long, heavy metal hair. Gets out and says, hey, man, let's get some dew and dough, which meant Mountain Dew and Donuts. And I was like, sure, let's do that. And so we went back into the Taylor Food Mart, bought the Mountain Dew and Donuts, 
came back mm-hmm. out to the four tar station wagon, got in the car, and started to drive away. And as I started to drive away, I felt like the car was kind of having a hard time getting movement forward. It was like, ah, yeah. like it was like, ah. And so rather than stopping the car, I floored it because that's what one does. And I, so I hit the gas and the car lurched forward and I heard this horrible metal grinding sound, this sound. And I was like, oh no, I must've hit like one of those like concrete pylons next to the gas pump. Or, I mean, I must've hit something and I was like, oh no, my dad's going to kill me. So I, I looked reflectively, reflexively or reflectively or whatever. I looked into the rearview mirror and then all I saw was fire. And I was, of course, shocked. I popped it into park. I jumped out of the car. And what had happened was I had left the gas pump in the gas tank. And I had driven forward. Now, today, in our modern convenience of how we pump gas, if you were to do this, and I don't recommend it, but if you were to do it, what would happen is the hose would pull free from where it's hanging from above you. Like if you look at a gas pump, you look up above, there's like a a thing and it would just pull free and you drive off with the hose and that would be embarrassing. By the way, I I once was pumping gas and it just fell out of the top there. Oh, it just fell out. See? Just fell out. And it quit. It did quit pumping, but not for a couple of seconds. There was a lot of gas splurging around. Oh, sure. I'm sure a bunch of gas like fell down. Thankfully, I wasn't smoking a cigarette. Exactly. Yep. Yes. And uh, that would have been bad. Yeah. So, but no, but back in the day, the hose was firmly attached to that gas pump so that no one could steal it. <laughs> and so what happened was when I drove forward, I pulled the entire pump out of the ground. It just came <laughs> off its base, <laughs> broke whatever was holding it in place and pulled it forward. And so all this gasoline that was underneath the pump and now was, I guess, primed to come forward, just was spilling out <laughs> of, of the gas pump. And the friction of pulling the gas pump across the, the black the surface, the black surface, whatever it's called, um, had lit it on fire, like sparks flew, <laughs> lit the whole thing on fire. And so it was just like, fires 20 30 feet in the air (laughs) now if you were as old as me and jonathan you will recall when saddam hussein when saddam hussein invaded kuwait and when he left he left all the oil wells on fire like as a big you know middle finger to the people of kuwait and (laughs) that looked exactly like that it was like kuwait except it was Canyon, Texas. And so my car is covered in fire. and the, At least the back of the car is covered in fire. And the, but the pose is still... And I'm the sorry, gas there's gasoline on the, on the back of yes. the car that is alight? Yes, the car is on... The back of the car is covered in fire because of the <laughs> gasoline had sprayed on the back of the car. And so the, but the gas... The hose is still in the car. And so I had a choice to make. <laughs> I was thinking, oh my gosh, 
this could blow up my car. So do I reach my hand into the flame or do I let my father's car blow up? And I was like, I'm going to reach my hand into the flame. So I did. I reached my hand into the flame. I grabbed the, the little nozzle thing. I took it. I threw it to the side. Yes, I did burn my hand. But I didn't even notice it at the time. Now, while this is happening simultaneously, they've okay, cut the camera simultaneously. Robert Pelfrey, six foot seven, broad shoulders, lots of hair, is sitting in the four tar station wagon in the front seat with Mountain Dew in one hand, donuts in the other, and his seatbelt is fastened and he can't get his, so he can't get his seatbelt off. So he's like, ah, and he yells an expletive. He throws the food into the the where the baseboard or whatever where his feet are, pops the seatbelt off, he jumps out of the car just about the same time. I am also running into the Taylor Food Mart. And we both run in at the same time. The lady who works at the Taylor Food Mart is up against the wall watching as pump after pump explode like shoot off <laughs> like rockets boom! and then like seconds later boom! <laughs> they're all flying the whole gasoline front, like the three pumps that are out front are gone and there's nothing <laughs> but but flame columns of flame pouring out of the front. Are they flying up in the air like rockets? They fly up in the air several feet like rockets and then bonk, they fall down. You know? And so this lady's watching her business, you know, burn out front. <laughs> She's up against the thing and Robert Pelfrey says, Do you have a fire extinguisher? <laughs> it's like, what? And she says, I think there's one in the back. <laughs> and then Robert says, as I go to the back to get the fire extinguisher, he says, has this place been inspected recently? <laughs> Which I don't know what that means. We grab the fire extinguisher and I go out and I, but after like two or three squirts, the fire extinguisher is out of fire extinguisher juice and the place is still, it's still burning. <laughs> so we stand there. I'm not going to get back in the car because there is always a possibility that the car's going to blow up. So the car's just sitting there. You know, there's fire everywhere. But I'm just like watching this thing happen. Um, so she must have called the fire department. Now, Canyon, Texas, like I say, is a small town, 10,000 people. At the time, don't know what it's like now, but I had a volunteer fire department, which means that these are guys who are at home in bed, right? And they get a phone call and then they have to show up. So it takes a few minutes. So several minutes later, I don't, I don't know how long it was, but it felt like a long time. But several minutes later, these fire, this fire truck, this one fire truck, pulls up. But by the time it pulls up, the gasoline's burned itself out. So each of the little places where the gas pump was standing is just like ripped metal in a little flame, like kind of like the eternal flame on JFK's tomb. It's like, <laughs> you know? <laughs> And this guy gets out of the fire truck and he's fully covered. He's like in white. I remember him being in white, like a white fire suit. And he has this, this is like hand, hand pump thing. And he comes up and he goes. And seconds later, I mean, he's put out the, the flames that still exist. And then he looks at me and I look at him and he shrugs. I shrug. He gets back into the truck and then he's driving away. <laughs> The next thing that happens is that all the police 
who are in the range of Canyon, Texas, all show up. And so this is the Canyon is the Canyon local PD shows up. Um, Canyon is the county seat of Randall County. And so the sheriff shows up, the sheriff's department shows up. There's a, we're right across the street from what was then called West Texas State University, now West Texas A&M. So the college police show up. And so they have ringed the Taylor Food Mart with all the police in town with their lights on. And then there's such the inner ring. And then there's an outer ring because all of these pickup trucks have pulled up and formed an outer ring because these are all <laughs> drunk cowboys who have seen the flames because West Texas is totally flat, right? <laughs> who have seen the flames from, you know, 10 miles away or whatever and have come to witness what it was. And so there's all these cowboys sitting in their pickup trucks drinking. And a lot of them I went to high school with. And they're saying like, McKinsey blew up the Taylor Mart. Woo! All right, so this is happening. There's the cops are questioning me, and they each each it felt like each department had to ask me the same question over and over again. And they're asking me, like, you know, why did it and everything else? <laughs> <laughs> And the one cop is, I'm like, one cop says, well, son, he says, you know, I can't give you a ticket. He says, because you didn't, you didn't leave private property. Because I don't know if this is a crime or not. He goes, so I, I, I guess you can just go home. <laughs> <laughs> so I do. I, I, I'm like, all right. So Robert and I, we get back in the car and yes, there was some fired. There was some, some heat damage to the paint. But it, that's all. There's no other damage I can tell. <laughs> we get in the car. We realize that Robert's car is actually at my house. So he has to go all the way back to my house. I can't just take him straight home. Now, and I live out in the middle of nowhere. I mean, like, Canyon, Texas is way more populated than where I live, which is nowhere. And so we get on this dark desert highway. It was dark West Texas highway. At like three something in the morning, four in the morning, I'm driving him home. And this is back in the day when every, everything was 55 miles an hour, no matter where you were. So this yeah. two lane flat top in the middle of nowhere is 55 miles an hour. And I don't know how fast I'm going, but it's faster than 55. And as I'm driving, Robert and I are talking and we're like, you know, saying like, oh, we could have died. And man, that was really hard. And oh, wow, I can't believe this happened. And have I ever told you that I love you? Like all this stuff is happening and we're going to like kiss or something. Not really going to kiss. But anyway, we're talking about all this stuff and we're being, it's very emotional. And cop lights come on and I'm being pulled over. I'm like, oh, what is going on? And I figured it must have something to do Crime spree. Well, I'm like a crime spree. So I pull over and it's the Department of Public Safety, which is the highway patrol in Texas. Okay. DPS, DPS, Department of Public Safety. DPS trooper comes up, you know, license and registration. I'm like, yeah. So I hand him my license and registration. He looks at the license. He looks at me. And he says, he says, uh, Mackenzie, he said, you just pull up the Taylor Martin Canyon? <laughs> and I said... <laughs> I said, yes, sir. That's me. He says, he says, son, your name's all over the radio. They're, they're talking about you in Austin by now. He said, you better, he said, you better just drive on home. You're in no trouble with your mama as it is. <laughs> and, so I my license. and so I drive home 
I drive home, say goodbye to Robert. I go to bed. And then, like I said, it was Saturday night. It's Sunday morning, very early in the morning. I feel this weight on my bed. And it's my mother. Mm-hmm. My mother's sitting on the edge of my bed on Sunday morning. She goes, Thomas, do you have something to tell me? <laughs> and I was like, like literally, I'd been asleep for like two hours. And I said, no, I, I no. You know, I still smell like gasoline and fire. Like I still wear the same clothes. You know, I was like, no. And she goes, Thomas, I just got a phone call from Mr. Taylor of the Taylor Food Mart in Canyon. <laughs> I said, oh, yeah, mom. Last night I blew up the Taylor Food Mart. <laughs> she says, that's what he says, son. He's very upset. <laughs> so long and short of it is when you get a when when you when you buy insurance for your car, you get two kinds of caps on how much money they'll put out. One of them is on how much damage you can do to another car. And another is how much damage you can do to property. And my property cap, whatever it was, somehow, I guess, covered the, uh, the damage I had done to the Taylor Food Mart and to their gas pumps. Wow. Taylor Food Mart was closed for quite some time while they got new <laughs> gas pumps and I guess had to fireproof something. And I, wow. I, will, I, I will tell a quick epilogue, which is, as you can tell, I have told the story before. It's actually been quite some time, but I used to tell the story at parties, like in my twenties, constantly. You know, like you said, like got to dinner on this story. And one time, I told that story at this party, and everyone was just hooping and hollering, going crazy. And so I ended it by saying, "Can anybody beat that?" You know, like throwing down this gauntlet. And there was this young guy that none of us knew. He just showed up at this party. He was sitting over in the corner, and he says, "I can." And every face turns to this kid, and he says. I once derailed a train. (laughs) (laughs) And he told us, anyway, he told that story and it was not nearly as funny because it was actually really horrible. That's it. That's the whole story. Uh, I'm amazed that your insurance paid for that whole thing. Yeah, that's the way it works, man. I think I noticed on our, this may have been a while ago. I remember getting an insurance policy a few years ago and it was like, $100,000 $100,000 in auto damage and $300,000 in property damage. And I was like, hmm. yeah, that, yeah, that, that guess, should do it. Yeah. I don't know. I don't know how much yeah. gas pumps cost. Yeah, right. <laughs> um, and when they changed the, the, the rules so that they had detachable hoses, did they call that Thomas's bill or something, <laughs> anything like that? <laughs> they call it Thomas's law. That's exactly right. <laughs> <laughs> and did you... Um, do you think you ended up going to seminary, becoming a priest? Is is, is there something about trying to make up uh, for, for this? And, <laughs> yeah, penance is kind of thing. No. You're trying to do enough good in the world to make up for what you did <laughs> on your 18th birthday? No, I believe in grace. Salvation is by grace alone. What, are you not reformed anymore, Jonathan? <laughs> you don't know this? Maybe I need to read your book again. Maybe you should read my book. It, it'll, it'll preach the gospel to you. <laughs> No, I don't. I don't well, think it had was, anything to do with it. Okay. All right. Yeah. No. Sorry. Well, <laughs> thank you for telling that story. It's a great one. I. I. Uh, it never grows. It never gets old for me. Thank you. Um, thank you. So, I think our work here is done, Thomas. This is. This is. Uh, this is what you've come to do, and you've done it. 
You know, that's so like, that's my whole life, man. I ride into town. I do good. <laughs> I ride out of town. People watch me and they go, Shane, come back, Shane. As I ride away into the sunset. Yeah. And your four Taurus station wagon. Taurus station wagon. <laughs> Colleen Rudolph is from West Texas, where nature seems determined to kill you. But she lived to tell about it, which is precisely what she does in the following story. In my neck of the mesquites. I suspect most people's hometowns enjoy their share of quirky or famous citizens, tell tales of strange traditions of unknown origin from a distant past, or boast of interesting landmarks or architecture. Mine kills stuff. Only the toughest forms of life survive there. Most of them can stab, prick, or sting. Yuccas, basically herbaceous swords, scorpions, two pinchers and a stinger, and horned toads, covered in spikes like tiny dinosaurs, all cozy up together in my neck of the mesquites, thorns three inches long. Even the wildflowers are dangerous. Russian thistle, or Celsolus tragus, begins its life innocuously enough a bushy green plant with diminutive white to pale pink flowers. It's when it dies and takes on a new name that it becomes infamous. I remember the first week of my freshman year of college in a town hundreds of miles away from home. It was that time when no one knew anyone yet, and every introduction included your hometown. And I would get a funny response when I said I was from the oil fields of West Texas. The new acquaintance would get all wide-eyed and excited. Do you have tumbleweeds? she would ask. Yes, I would say. Wow, was all she could say in awe. Clearly, she had no idea what a tumbleweed, the aforementioned, the aforementioned Russian thistle, is. A tumbleweed is a ball of dead thorns, the deadness making the thorns harder and more unyielding. Growing up, the west wind would blow tumbleweeds up to the front door of our house, and they would collect there. My job was to drag these balls of prickles, which could grow to the size of a Volkswagen beetle, away from our house to the empty field at the end of the block and fling them over the barbed wire fence. I never came back unscathed. But what brings back memories of my hometown more quickly than any other is the smell of rotten eggs, sour gas. In a place where pump jacks are nearly as ubiquitous as jackrabbits, the smells of the oil field pervade everything, the hardest to ignore being the smell of sour gas. One summer, I worked as an intern with a local oil company. The job began with safety training. That training provided all the details of deadly hydrogen sulfide gas and its unignorable smell of rotten eggs. During that training, they passed around a little canister that smelled like rotten eggs to acquaint us, the new employees, with the odor, as if we all hadn't grown up with it. Yet, still somehow, we all took a whiff of that canister. But the kicker is, they explained, you can only smell hydrogen sulfide when the gas is highly diluted, as in concentrations of a few parts per million. That stinky, low concentration is not dangerous. When it's deadly is when you can't smell it at all. The air is not the only foul-smelling element of my hometown. Another is the water. The water from the tap has a noxious odor and a bad taste, like a mixture of pond scum, chlorine, and something metallic. The more persnickety citizens filter the water before drinking it or cooking with it. Those who can't slowly develop dark, brown, splotchy stains on their teeth that no dentist or whitening regime can remove. Those stains are the distinguishing characteristic between a native and a transplant to the area. <clears throat> and then there is the heat and the wind. The heat presses down while the merciless wind pushes ever sideways. 
That summer of my internship, I was out working in a natural gas plant in fire-retardant Nomex coveralls, and we had a string of 17 days in a row where the high temperature was not less than 115 degrees. Wind that hot does not cool a sweaty brow, nor does it refresh the soul. It is more like a blast furnace, and it furnace, and it permanently shapes the landscape and the vegetation. The branches of the trees in our front yard grew like long fingers reaching toward the east, pushed that direction by the unrelenting wind. Even on the rare calm days, those trees still looked as if they were being blown sideways by a gale. And while survival is difficult for any species in my hometown, there is one source of beauty that overarches all the prickles and thorns and bad smells and heat the great bowl of the sky is nearly uninterrupted from horizon to horizon to horizon, with little either God-made or man-made to trip the eye. The sky is big, and the thunderstorms, when they come, are big, and the sunsets are big, and the night sky is big and full. The constellations are clear and bright, and with a blanket laid out in the yard and a patient eye, and as long as the fire ants don't find you, you can spy satellites and the space station and shooting stars. To experience it makes even the hardest and prickliest of humans take a deep breath, breathing in wonder, and exhale, breathing out awe, and thank God for the opportunity to live in such an intense, unrestrained, refining, hallowed place. Earlier this year, Christine Purifoy published A Home in Bloom, Four Enchanted Seasons with Flowers. It's a beautiful book. The photography is beautiful and the writing is beautiful. I commend it to you, especially if you have a garden or if you care about beauty. The piece you're about to hear about Christie's hometown of Bryan, Texas, is actually from her next book, which will come out in the spring of 2024. The Spirit of a Place by Christy Purifoy when I was 13, my hometown of Bryan, Texas, received brief notoriety when it was named by some now-forgotten media institution as one of the very best. Was it best small town? Best for quality of life? Best for raising a family? I can no longer remember, and when I asked my mother and sisters if they could help me recall the details, they could only give me the text-thread equivalent of puzzled silence. They had no idea what I was talking about. Google was no help either, as this memory lies in the distant pre-internet days, so you'll simply have to take my word for it when I tell you how a big city reporter visited our best-of-town only to write a scathing rebuttal to the ranking how could our place be best when our downtown business district was so small, so derelict? How could we be best when the only shopping mall was over the city line and the town right next door? How could such a dull, brown place be good, let alone best? Okay, the dull brown bit is all me, but I definitely remember the comment about the shopping mall. In fact, that's how I know I was 13. I spent a lot of time at that mall with my best friend, April, and the city limit sign that divided Bryan, Texas, my award-winning hometown, from April's College Station, Texas, with the shopping mall, did nothing to change the fact that the mall belonged to both of us. Bryan and College Station were called Twin Cities, 
though now, having lived for many years in Chicago, I can't really think of them as anything other than twin towns. However, the twins had not been given top billing together, only Brian Texas was named, and the reporter's inability to see the good in our place was a scandal to us and to our neighbors. I can remember how our family took the reporter's criticisms and argued them down one by one as we sat dishing out taco salad ingredients from the large Lazy Susan on our dinner table. Oh, if only that reporter had knocked on our door. We could have told him why our home really was the best. I laugh remembering how our egos had been hurt because I also remember how my father bitterly complained about our town's excessive heat and humidity after every summer vacation spent in the Colorado Rockies. Why? He would cry out each time our family station wagon hit the wall of hot, humid air that signaled we were home. Why? Why did my ancestors ever come to this place? I remember how my mother would complain about the post oak trees that were just about the only trees in our area. Why so many post oaks when the live oaks in other Texas towns were so much prettier? And I remember how my parents would pile all four of us kids into that family station wagon for regular trips to the big city of Houston to find wonders we could not access in our small town. Things like a shopping mall with an indoor ice skating rink and an international food market that sold the Greek olives my mother loved and the sticky rice my father wanted. In truth, the only good thing we generally said about our place, at least amongst ourselves, was that it was home. My father was a gardener as well as a weaver of bedtime tall tales for his three daughters and no doubt he is the reason I write books about gardening today. In between complaints about the extreme summer humidity and the salty soil, my father was diligently cultivating something much more important than a garden. He was growing a relationship with our place. In the North Texas farming family in which he had been raised, an intimate relationship with the land was a given. Without it, they would have gone hungry. Without it, there would have been no money for new shoes, new overalls, or the rough paper tablets and fat crayons required by the local school teacher. There would have been no necktie or best dress for Sunday mornings at the First Baptist Church. Today, for most of us, a relationship with the ground beneath our feet feels optional. It's something we can pursue, like a hobby, or ignore in favor of travel or in deference to a long commute. But not for my father when he was a child, and not for my father when he was an adult. The farm had taught him well, and he could not, he would not, leave our brown backyard to its own devices. He would transform it into our Texas Eden, and it would feed us mulberries and blackberries and plums, It would give us cobbler and jam and bouquets of heirloom roses. I imagine that long ago ranking of our town's merits weighed data like unemployment rates and median income and access to hospital care. Maybe it also counted days of sunshine or the availability of green space. These things matter, 
but they tell us little about the spirit of a place. I think we were so offended by the journalists' criticisms because we knew that our experience of our place could not be summed up with economic bullet points. Every place, if it hasn't been completely obliterated by asphalt and chain stores, has its own unique spirit. The spirit of my hometown could be found in the ubiquitous post-oak trees and their bounty of acorns in the bluebonnet wildflowers flowing alongside the highway like water each spring, and in the university traditions that united us across our twin, okay, I'll give in, across our twin cities. The spirit of our place could be found in the public park where children fed ducks, in the churches where we gathered with neighbors on Sundays, in the public neighborhood pools where we cooled off on hot summer days and where, as a teenaged lifeguard, I always shouted at the children because I never could learn how to use my whistle. I'm not sure it's possible to grow roots in completely anonymous places. The spirit of a place, even if that spirit is not always pleasant, is the part of the place we are able to be in relationship with. This is true in the big picture, post-oak trees, blue-bonnet flowers, university traditions, and in the very small. Like the mulberry tree I climbed as a young girl so I could read my Nancy Drew book in its branches. Every place has some essential spirit, but sometimes it goes into hiding. Sometimes it needs a gardener's help to bring it more fully into view. Do you live in an English Tudor-style house? Then a formal knot-garden of boxwood shrubs helps tell that story and helps evoke the spirit of an ancient English place. Do you live in a hot and dry climate? Don't pretend otherwise with irrigated long grass, but embrace the Mediterranean glory of a rosemary or lavender hedge. Your garden is part of a larger context, a larger story. Rather than fighting that, you can embrace it with your planting choices, and in this way you can help your family and your neighbors to better know the place where they live too. The patch of ground on which you garden exists nowhere else in the world, and you are its caretaker. As my friend the garden designer Julie Whitmer likes to say, the goal of gardening is not a perfect place. It's a beloved place. My hometown was not obviously lovable. The big city reporter showed us that, even if we couldn't admit the truth of it even around our family table. But despite all the flaws of our beloved, we make places lovable with our living. David Graves was an Air Force kid, so he didn't have a hometown. But his dad's hometown of Bluffdale, Texas was an anchoring place for him. His story is a portrait of the home where his grandparents welcomed him throughout his childhood. And in a first for the Habit podcast, David's story ends with singing. David and his friends Sarah and Will will usher us out of the Lone Star State and back to our own hometowns with a performance of the old hymn, Golden Bells. For my eighth birthday, 
my granddaddy mailed me a real bow and arrows, along with a razor-sharp fillet knife. We lived in Virginia that year. The Air Force moved us every year or two, but I loved visiting my grandparents in the summer. We drive cross-country in our Aggie Maroon Toyota van to Bluffdale, Texas, population 300. Grandmother smiled from the majestic front porch as we arrived. My grandparents lived in the old Holt House, a mansion built by a Bluffdale doctor in 1895. Inside the front door, the parlor to the left had a piano and a box TV with two dials. That's where we built enormous maroon and white towers with the Texas A&M dominoes, or played with the abacus that the adults used to keep score. There were glass dishes of caramels by the window. My grandparents' room was on the right, with a bottle of camphophonique on their nightstand. If we saw grandmother come from her room at night, her gray hair would be down past her waist instead of in its usual tight bun. The hallway was lined with rifles in their padded cases and faded pictures of my cousins and other relatives. I wondered who some of them were and how long ago the pictures had been taken. The kitchen had a wall clock in the shape of a golden pear. On the opposite wall was a picture of the old woman from the Wendy's commercials saying, Where's the beef? Red carpet covered the stairs going up. There wasn't a shower upstairs, just a bathtub, so we poured water over ourselves with a tin pot. The water always had a distinctive smell. Once, I turned on the bathtub faucet, and a couple of scorpions fell out. The guest rooms had big box fans for the Texas heat. My dad's old room was a museum. The dozens of arrowheads he had collected hung on the walls and frames and a display case showed exotic knives and brass sculptures from East Pakistan, now Bangladesh. My dad spent his first two years of high school there, while granddaddy taught poultry science in Maimansingh with USAID. Painted folding fans and other curios came from my dad's older brother, who had been stationed in Japan after the Korean War. I liked to read the jokes out of the 1950s Boys Life magazines that lay by the bed, and the crackled copy of Ben Hunt's Indian Crafts and Lore. Grandmother filled the breakfast table with homemade biscuits and gravy, scrambled eggs, sausage, fresh grapefruit, and cans of Tex Sun orange juice. Later, there would be vegetables from her garden and fried catfish or fried squirrel. I loved waking up at 4 a.m., moving through the strange dark and stillness as Dad and Granddaddy loaded their shotguns into the old red pickup, the smell of bug spray as we entered the woods to catch the squirrels at sunrise. Then Granddaddy would set up a portable table and his propane stove, and we'd have scrambled eggs and fried squirrel in the wilderness. Later, we'd fish. First, Dad and Granddaddy would stretch a fine net across a stream to catch minnows for bait. I remember when Dad carried us kids across a shallow stream and then offered to carry Granddaddy. No, I can jump that, he said, and even at 85 years old, he jumped it easily. A few hours later, he helped me pull in a giant catfish. Dad took us arrowhead hunting in a distant field owned by a friend. When we walked across a trestle bridge, he pointed out the fish swimming below. He told us Granddaddy knew how to cut and fry the bony carp that most people didn't eat. A bit further on, Dad pointed to a spot on the side of the road where he had once found a perfect, tiny, bird's point arrowhead. When we walked across the vast, empty field, 
we came across bits of shattered pottery with deep blue patterns on white. Dad liked to collect those, too, to puzzle back together the art on the frontier dishes. A meadowlark flapped strangely on the ground, trying to draw us away, but we came across its nest full of eggs. Miraculously, they were hatching at that very moment. We watched the chicks emerge, then moved on quickly so that the mother wouldn't abandon them. We fanned out, scanning the parched ground, and then I saw it. The marbled gray arrowhead lay bare under the sun. It scalded my hand as I ran to show my dad. Later, in sixth grade in Georgia, I carried it in my pocket to school every day until I noticed a corner flake off. We had an Easter with my grandparents and a 4th of July and several fun summers with large family reunions. Granddaddy died on February 1st, 1989, when I was 10 years old. My dad flew down to be with him in his final days. As he passed, Granddaddy looked up at the ceiling. His final words were beautiful, beautiful. He had always been a man of faith. At the First Baptist Church, my grandmother stood a long time at the open casket, looking down at Granddaddy in his suit. I wondered what she was remembering from their 63 years of marriage. It was a cold February morning with a rare dusting of snow on the ground at Glen Cemetery. Grandmother didn't cry at the burial. I also didn't cry, not until many years later. I didn't know that I would lose an entire world that day and a home that I loved. Grandmother passed a few years later. The other day, my parents visited me in Dallas, and we were singing old hymns. My dad remembered Golden Bells, which had been his grandmother's favorite. She had died eight years before I was born, but she used to sing Golden Bells to everyone in the nursing home, and they sang it at her funeral. My dad tried to sing it for me, and mom tried to join him, but they couldn't get through it. It reminded them too much of their grandparents. I looked up the lyrics. They were written in 1887. Yesterday, I got together with my friends Dave, Will, and Sarah, and we spent an hour recording my great-grandmother's favorite song, When They Ring the Golden Bells. This podcast is brought to you by The Rabbit Room, where art nourishes community and community nourishes art. And all our podcasts are made possible by the generous support of our members. To learn more about us, visit rabbitroom.com. And to become a member, rabbitroom.com slash donate. Just beyond the shine.